Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the China Shop as we kick off episode two of the Optional Experience. I am your host, Kyle. Joining me today is Blaine McCauley of the Penny Lane Podcast and our esteemed instructor, Eric Smolinski of ES Invests. If you are following along, please feel free to message us if you have any questions, comments, ideas. All of our contact info will be in the episode description. We are also recording video for these, and we'll be sure to include the links to the video if you want to be able to see Eric's screen. So before I pass the mic over to Eric, let's check in with everyone, see if they got any news to share. Blaine, what's going on in your world? Not much. I was telling you before we started uh, recording that I got the last couple of weeks of summer with my kids. I've been in Breckenridge, Colorado uh, since since we last spoke, doing a little family vacay and just uh, gearing up for the school year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Eric, what do you got going on, man? Not shit. <laughs> well, fucking hey. <laughs> well, what's the plan for today then? For sure. I'm going to pull up the screen as per usual so that we can get a look at what we are diving into. So first off, we're going to start with some homework. We have some recaps that we need to run through. Then we have the goals for the session today. The primary goals, I want to pivot us now more towards kind of the like practical application of options trade is really what I'm going for. Mm-hmm. So the first session, we talked a bit about the Greeks and stuff like that which is foundational. If you're just catching the series now, I highly recommend you check out that first episode, get it first, because we're going to be talking about some of the concepts that we learned from the last one as we run through this stuff. So once we kind of think about the different ways we can approach trading options, the, you know, I want us to continue to gear towards the practical deployment of these. So What the third goal says here is shift mindset to long-term edge generation. This is a really important concept for options traders, really traders in general. We have this really huge issue and it's again, observable. You can look up multitude of papers on it that I won't bore you with, but the punchline is retail traders hate taking losing trades. So there are all sorts of mental gymnastics that go into avoiding that. And frequently that comes at the expense of long-term success. So What I'm hoping to do is to get people to think about options, not as any one individual options trade, but as a system that will be deployed over the long run. 
So we're going to have losing trades in the deployment of that system as long as it's net positive long run, it's still a successful system. That's the idea. So you'll hear some of that kind of laced into the conversation. And then I have some exercises for us to run through specifically thinking about deploying options trades, and then we will round out some homework. So to get us started, I do want to begin with our homework. We had the idea of a trading plan, trading log, like I said, not gonna spend a lot of time reviewing these things, but I am curious from both of you, how do you think about trading plans and trading logs? Is it something that you currently do want to maintain and expand on? Is it something that you don't do and you don't want to do? I, I just like to get an understanding of how you guys think about these documents. I am 100% on board with trade logs. I am 100% on board with having a fully defined setup that I have a very analytical and logical mentality or mindset. So like that is how my mind works. Like I want to see the statistics. I want to see how all the data like points to this being the right idea. Got it. How about you, Blaine? Um, I have a trading plan that I follow. I follow the same trading plan every day and um, trading logs I have done in the past and plan on taking up, I was saying before we started recording, I am in a sort of strange place with my trading right now, just trying to get my kids back in school. And my life is kind of, I'm not trading as much as I usually do. And I have less time available to spend at the computer when my kids aren't here. So anyway, trading log is definitely something I'm trying to get back into in the fall when I have more time to trade. I love that. And I actually hope over the course of this session and maybe the next one or two, to maybe share a few tools with you that you can use when you have less time. Because to me, that's actually one of the coolest parts about trading derivatives is the different levers you get to pull on, one of which is time frame. And I think some of my most successful trades were when I was on active duty in the Marine Corps. And we were at a training exercise and I couldn't look at something for three, four weeks at a clip. And literally sometimes by just not being in the way of it, the trades perform exceedingly well. So my guess is there's actually probably a couple tools that we might be able to integrate into the toolkit that will help when you have those time constrained periods. Because what I make sure to review with people is like there's, you know, optimal deployment, whatever that looks like for an individual. But then there's life like you're talking about. You have other commitments. And for me, I think about trading, it's something I'm fascinated by, but it serves a purpose, which is so I can make money and control my time. That's the that's the punchline here. So right. if the only way you can trade is by living in front of a screen, that's a hell of a way to do it. You, you can be done, but it seems uh, not exactly what I'm interested in. So with that, when you guys are kind of structuring your trading plans, trading logs, anything like that, do you guys have any questions about that? Or do you guys feel like you have a pretty usable system, you like what you have, and you'll just continue to build that out? I use a lot of volume profile in, um, when I'm using like directional ideas. Lately, I've been playing around a lot with volatility and IV just from the conversations that we've been having on the uh, Wednesday shows. So mm -hmm. I really don't know what to track or what to log at this point. Like, other than just kind of the prompts from what you've been giving me. I, right now, I'm feeling that process out. This is all completely new to me right now. Got it. Yeah, so for that, the way I think about it is the what I track in my log is different for each strategy. So mm. I actually have an Excel sheet 
and I break it out into different tabs. So I have tabs for individual strategies and individual trades. And there's a reason for that, to your point. There are some things that are important to me in some trades and not so in others. So that's exactly what I would do if I were you. I would set up, whether it's Google Sheet, Excel, whatever, and I would think about the trade itself, what matters to that individual trade, and then track those details. So for example, when you're talking about IV, I think implied volatility is a place in a lot of option strategies. And in general, that's one that I would include on most of my strategy logs and the trade logs because it can be informative. However, if I'm trading something like a ratio called diagonal, implied volatility is a different point than it does if I'm trading zero DTE variance risk premiums. So I would start there. I would think about the strategy and I would say what matters to this strategy, list out those variables and track those to start. And what you'll find actually is as you do that, you'll start to say like, oh yeah, I need this or no, I don't need this. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is a really educational process. That's why I'm passionate about getting people to do their own versus outsourcing it to like some sort of software platform. However, if that's what you prefer, that's what you prefer. Like compliance is the ultimate goal. So yeah, as you go through different iterations and as we talk about the trades that you guys put on, I think you'll come up with some ideas as well on what matters. So that's actually what I wanted to do next, unless Blaine, if you had any specifics on the trading plan or trading logs. Okay, cool. So let's take a look then. I'm gonna pull up some of your guys' trades real quick that you sent in and just wanna run through what we're thinking. So Kyle, I think these are some of yours. I'm seeing straddles. So inherently that's telling me implied volatility matters here. That's the yep. first thing I'm seeing. If I'm trading a straddle, so talk to me about your deployment of a straddle, executive summary level, like two, three sentences, that kind of level. All right. Uh, my thesis was to use at the money straddles 12 to 14 days prior to earnings to try to capture an expansion in volatility. I took these three trades. I priced them out based on the uh, IV that was currently running. So I had a high IV, a medium IV, and a lower IV, or at least in terms of like the three of them. Um, the idea was really just to kind of get three trades with three different variables to kind of see how they all performed leading up to the same earnings date. The mm -hmm. QCOM was a bit of a mistake. I think I actually put that one on on the 19th because I wrote down the wrong leg. So the, that one did not start at the same date. I just decided, okay, I screwed this trade up. Today's the day I make the trade. Good. So I updated it for that. Uh, I had some risk management rules in place. My plan was to close it out if I saw a 50% return on my initial position. I had no idea what to base these on. I was just starting mm -hmm. with a two to one risk reward ratio. 25% loss was supposed to be cut bait. And if days to expiration got to less than one, then I was gonna close them out as well. Okay, and how are they performing so far? Uh, the Shopify and QCOM are both underwater. I think I priced them out uh, this morning. They're within uh, the drawdown limits of the trade. Um, Oxy is the one that's up. It's trading at like 390 something uh, out of 336 uh, from the initial entry. The other ones Got are it. down, I think 755 on shop roughly, and then like eight 850 something on the other one. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I like the overall thesis there. I like the way that you're you're structuring. I think the time frame that you're picking makes sense. A couple things that I would offer to you as you're tracking these. The first one is 
when you're looking at these IV expansion plays leading into the earnings release, I don't know if you've done this, but I think it's worth your time, is to look at the previous earnings cycles in Shop, QCOM, Oxy, and to see how did IV behave leading into the release. And I found that, that after you showed okay. me that, but I don't quite fully understand it. Okay, well, let's take a look together then. Thank you. So let's grab Oxy. Everybody chill. We're talking about the stock. We're not grabbing yeah. fucking <laughs> Oxys. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a few different things we can look at here. I think what we should take a look at, though, is earnings. And we can see how implied volatility has moved leading into the release. And okay, so this so is... Go ahead. Wait, sorry, just to understand this page here, where is the actual earnings release and what does, how much time does each tick of the cursor correspond to? Great questions. So the vertical dash line here is when earnings release is. So that's kind of like whatever's yeah, in the okay. dead center here. So that's when earnings was reported on each. And then these, I don't know. Um, it's funny I that you assume they were daily, but I wasn't quite sure because I wanted, it's I funny didn't you understand bring that what the because, time frame is leading into yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. Because I've looked at this exact thing myself to see like, so this is a six month daily and this is what the candle, the daily candle looked like on earnings. Right. So it's like this inverted hammer, whatever the fuck these things are called. And when I look at this, it lines up generally. So I always assumed that they were the day, but in mm -hmm. some of them, actually the way that these look is slightly different on the same day. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's just an issue with the charting. I literally was just doing a study on this because it confused the shit out of me. Okay, um, so it's not just but, me. <laughs> yeah, but I believe these are daily. Okay. So the, but anyways, the, the thing that I was gonna highlight here though, is the run-up leading into earnings for most of these, they're varied. And yeah. I don't know if you've tested the severity of these, but that's exactly what I would do. I would say, okay, uh, five days out from earnings, you know, IV was at X point, then, you know, earnings minus five, earnings minus four, earnings minus three, right? And create like a little chart for yourself so that you can then do a little bit of math. And you can say, on average, this is when IV was the highest pre-earnings release. Because if you'll notice, they actually slide around quite a bit, but you can come up with an idea at least on what would be optimal for the expansion. The reason why I bring that up is because that expansion trade can be difficult to maintain is really what it boils down yeah. to. Sometimes you might get the bump early like this, and then it just trails off leading yeah. into earnings, then it's not profitable. There so, is two other issues that I found. I just put my uh, spreadsheet in the link in case you want to look at the rest of it, because I have been tracking 10 different tickers um, leading mm -hmm. up into their earnings uh doing just that basically tracking the ib the the uh price of an at the money straddle seeing how that moves as we get closer Good. but i think yeah. i made a mistake here and one of them being that i didn't look at the economic calendar and forgot that fomc was today mm -hmm. and that's going to be a huge unknown going in to this that i might have just lost on my on my straddles right that once that unknown of the fomc gets figured out then like that's gonna that's gonna hurt my my uh, asset, isn't it? Or shop QCOM and Oxy? Yeah. Like, do they depend on that as much, or is that just more no. the broader markets look at that? Exactly. So okay. the FOMC meeting matters in general, and you're going to mm -hmm. see that reflected in price. But for like specific earnings releases, that is still an unknown. So that okay. data is still super pertinent to the market. 
and you're actually very concentrated, right? So mm-hmm. um, when you're looking at Shopify or something like that, what Shopify is doing is super important. So okay. yeah, I, I actually think that it might have a very slight impact, but I wouldn't consider it to be large. But nonetheless, you highlight a good point, which is, you know, at least being aware before you mm-hmm. place these trades and your holding period is super important. Right. One of the one of the websites I like to use, I'm not affiliated. Actually, I think I might be now. But anyways, it's called financialjuice.com. And uh, yeah, I, yeah. Yep. So I used to make a calendar for people and I stopped doing it because it came across this and I thought it was just really it lists all the upcoming economic data. And the, the main thing I like about this, to be honest, is like the interest rate decision. If you click this, it takes you to the source, which is super oh, nice. You, yeah, that's you can run. Then. Yeah, you can run through stuff super quick that way. So anyways, that is something I I literally review every Sunday. It takes five seconds and then you kind of have that on your on your calendar. But I dig those. We'll talk a little bit more of these as we go along. But I want to take a look at Blaine's stuff real quick. And here are some of the the trades that I see from you. I see Mm -hmm. a completely different style. I see very active short time frames. So talk to me a little bit about what you what you're doing here and why. So I essentially trade these as they're as if they were futures. Okay. And I use the opening range to trade them. So um I was using the 30 second opening range and was having a lot of trouble with it. I mean, I I know that strategy, but I am now trying to use the 30 minute opening range. Okay. And I look for a trending market. And if it's not, and what I do for that is I look at um, ES, NQ, RTY. And if they are all moving in the same direction, then I would determine that it would be a trending market. And my idea is to catch trend days. That's, I'm very, very, very good at trend days. Now, those are not all the time, right? They're kind of few and far between. So the idea is to have money in the market, hoping to catch a trend day. And I can make, I mean, $1,200 on a a good trend day. And then I try not to lose more than about $200 a day, thinking that even like, and I don't trade every single day. I only trade if it is a trending market and if it is above the opening range or below the opening range. So um, recently, I have been waiting for the first 30-minute candle to get to some kind of support. Um, I've been trading calls. Mostly, I traded some puts today. But usually, I'm trading calls because what's been happening is the market will open and then it will go down a little bit, find some support and then like get a new high of day. So I've been trying to catch that move on a a daily support. And the idea with the opening range trade is to lose as little as possible. So as soon as my trade is going green, I'm trying to raise my stop to break even. I'm trying to take a little bit off and raise the stop to break even so that if I get stopped out, it's for very little money. And if the trade goes and it does become a trend day, then I have a larger position on to catch those bigger moves. Got it. Yeah, that's really useful. So a couple questions. The the first one is, it looks like the the contract size I'm seeing is something like uh, 8, 12, stuff like that. 
Is there uh-huh. a reason why you prefer using something like the Qs versus RUT and instead of trading 10, you trade one? Um, I like to, I like the Qs because statistically I have made the most money trading the Qs in the history of my trading career. That's why I trade the Qs. I also used to trade Apple exclusively. So it, it sort of goes hand in hand. That's the only reason I trade them. And I like to scale out in thirds or like I, I really don't like to do a half. Um, I like to do thirds and that's usually why I buy the number that I buy. Got it. Yeah. That makes total sense. And yeah, really what I was highlighting, sorry, I know I said, right. I'm so used to trading the Russell myself, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, just the, the indices themselves, but that makes sense in terms of the scaling protocols. I'm following you there because as you know, those indices also have some tax advantages. Um, mm-hmm. They're Section 1256, which means 60-40 tax treatment. All proceeds are taxed 60% long-term, 40% at your um, whatever your tax bracket is. So yeah, that, but that still makes sense to me. The other thing I notice is varying days to expiration. What's up with that? Um, so I was, these are today's trades on the left. And then... Okay. Um, on the right or yesterday's trades, right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, um, I have recently, usually I buy two to three days out, which I don't enjoy doing. I used to try to buy a week out, but I, I've been just sort of like struggling with it. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of trying I usually try to buy one position, like uh, one percentage of my account I try to have in every trade. That's really why the dates change and the strikes change, because I'm trying to keep that position size as uniform as possible. And why do you pick like six days to expiration versus 10 days to expiration? Like, how do you arrive at that time frame? Um, so it's usually the way I do it is if the market is more volatile or less volatile. So if it's more volatile, then I try to buy closer expirations. And if it's less volatile, I'll try to buy some a little bit further away just to give it more time. But, you know, that's kind of dumb because I really don't hold anything overnight. So the time doesn't necessarily matter, but I don't want to get unnecessarily stopped out of a trade just because it, you know, some, some days you can unnecessarily get stopped out just because you're waiting on the market to make that move and you've got the right entry. But anyway. I don't know if that. No, it, it makes a ton of sense. And that's actually why I'm asking these probing questions. Because to me, this this is where money is made, is getting to this level of detail. Because understanding the day's expiration and your broader hypothesis, which I have two more questions to get me there, mm-hmm. it will help me understand more of what mechanism we're attempting to make money off of. And then mm-hmm. if there are ways for us to tweak the way that we're structuring these trades to get you closer to whatever um, the ultimate goal is. So. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. 
She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. One of the things we learned last time is Gamma, our friend Gamma. And we know that as we get closer to expiration, Gamma is going to be higher for all options. So when we think about these trades, one of the things you mentioned was volatility, which is actually going to be reflected via gamma. And to your mm-hmm. point, if you're trading shorter term timeframes, let's say that one days to expiration, and we start to get some market movement, those options, the premiums on those options, they're going to move way more than mm-hmm. something that's six days to expiration. So yeah. you innately have found a way to minimize some of your gamma exposure. It leads me to my follow-on question, which is what delta do you pick for your options when you're opening? I, d- I don't pay attention to that. So how do you pick like the 382, 371? Like how do you pick the strike price? I pick the strike price because it's not reflective necessarily in these trades, I think. But I pick the strike price that will allow me to buy the number of units that I want to buy and spend about a thousand dollars because then I like with tip uh, with, I don't like to do like intricate math. So I, if I know exactly how much I've spent on it, then I can like set the risk better sort of in my head. Got it. It Makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. No, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm following you. I think one of the reasons why, and this would be something I would highly recommend to introduce to your trading log, though, is definitely to track the delta of these. Okay. And it's for a couple okay. it's for a couple reasons. But one of the things that delta can help us with is it can give us an idea of how our options will move. So for example, if you buy something, like if those calls, if you buy calls that are a higher delta they're going to compound less. So you're going to pay more upfront. And Mm -hmm. as things move, you're not going to get like those thousand percent returns, but Mm -hmm. they will move 
closer to dollar for dollar with the underlying. So something you set up front is that you want these to mirror futures. Well, realistically, if you have something that's a higher delta, it's going to behave more like the underlying itself, ergo more like futures, which is a delta one product by itself. So it's something that I would tinker with just a little bit to see if you start to find a trend. And you can still do your same like cost sizing. Unfortunately, if it sounds like you know, you're wanting to maintain the ability to scale out in thirds and whatnot, that's naturally going to move you a little further out of the money. Mm -hmm. But I do think something that would be really, really cool for you to test is take a look at trading your strategy exactly as you are now and track that and then add on another variant where you go deeper in the money on the options mm -hmm. and but it would have to be sized accordingly. So for example, yeah. if we t if we take a look at the queues and we want our position to remain about a thousand bucks. So we'll pull up the queues. Let's take a look and let's say we want to trade the range breakout and we want something for a thousand bucks. You could do something like a 77 Delta, but you would only get two of them, something okay. like that. So you'll yeah. have to tinker with your sizing. But the reason why I think this might be useful to you is depending on the way you want these to move, I think a cool end state for you might be to set up one that's deeper in the money, like these 374s, and then maybe go to wherever you typically would go and then plus yourself up with something that's out of the money and cheaper. This cool. is two things. You have one position that will move closer dollar for dollar. So if it doesn't move that much, you'll still make some money on that one that's in the money but then you still give yourself that capability to find runners if you catch that trend and can make a bunch of money off of those simultaneously. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would be something I would look at if I were you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All of this, my entire strategy and game plan and stuff is really based on just my own observations after trading for three years, like mm -hmm. in kind of things that I've picked up over time, but this isn't something that I've learned from anybody. So there's, it's not like a set kind of process for exactly how to do it, which sometimes mm -hmm. makes me question, like, it's important to me, I think, to have a huge like hand in developing and finding my own process. But then also it's, I feel a little bit on my own with it sometimes, you know, because kind of tweaking it as I go. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm I'm in the same boat. Like I'm 100% self-taught on all this. Like I didn't have like any sort of like formal education in it. So I think that's actually why I started approaching things the way that I do so that I can create a data set so that I know there's efficacy behind what I'm doing. So I totally agree with you. And I think you're doing it the right way, which is being receptive to testing different variants. And then that's slowly how you'll dial in exactly what works. But that's actually really cool that you're doing that. It's also just a, a product of my stubbornness, I think. <laughs> like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this my own way. I think so. I think we have to have some of that in order to stick around long enough as much yeah. as honestly, we get our teeth kicked in. <laughs> I honestly think it's the only way to do it because the problem is, is trading yeah. is such a uniquely psychological experience that there's a reason why, and I say this all the time, we, we all have access to the same exact shit. Yet, if you ask 10 people how they're going to trade the market, you're going to get 10 different answers. And if you try to apply something that doesn't resonate with your risk reward profile, then you're going to be more, more likely to 
prematurely intercede in that trade and start to change things. So yeah, I, I think coming up with your own approach is kind of the way to go. So did you guys have any kind of lingering questions or anything that you wanted to discuss on the paper trades themselves? Essentially, the game plan going forward is we're going to have paper trades for every single session going forward. I, again, want to spend most of the time talking about the strategies, talking about the trades, and then we'll kind of add some layer on detail in just a second. But I want to make sure we round this part out. I had one question about IV from the trades that I was making and the things that I was tracking. When I was looking through mm -hmm. the uh, analyzed trade that we we're looking at on Thinkorswim, I noticed that there's usually a spike in the straddle price like a day or two after the earnings report happens. And I, I'd seen that across multiple assets that I was looking at. I was just curious if that's something that is tradable and if that's something that consistently happens. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. It's not something that I explicitly looked to trade because mm -hmm. there's not a steady state catalyst post earnings release for any of these. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at earnings releases, we have a known catalyst that we can then make decisions around. But if you're seeing kind of this, you know, resurgence several days later, my guess is in the sample that you're looking at, there's just different information being processed. But as I look out over Oxy, for example, I'm actually not seeing that being represented in the post move implied volatility. It happens here. Happens there a little bit, but not much. Same. Not the bit. IV. The look at the the ATM straddle. That's the the percentage move of the straddle over the course of that time period, right? Yeah. So I think there's a pretty significant reason for this. Um, I actually think this is probably expiration, and then they're looking at a new straddle, like for the next week. I don't know that oh, to be certain. Okay. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. To, to me, they they have to factor in an expiration somewhere. Okay. So, All right. Yeah. That that makes sense. All right. And then the next thing that I noticed was that the straddles that I have that I've been tracking that look like they're actually been increasing are actually the ones that don't stay flat or close to wherever my entry price was. It seems like the more that they move away from that, that that's when the value of that straddle starts to increase. One hundred percent correct. When you buy okay. a straddle, you just want it to move somewhere. You don't mm -hmm. care which way, it just needs to move up or down and it needs to be more than whatever you bought the straddle for. That's essentially where profit is. So we do want the straddle to move even going into the earnings, not necessarily Absolutely. just kind of stay flat. Interesting. Absolutely. Okay. If you if you buy a straddle to capture IV expansion into earnings, that is exactly what we want. We want Excellent. to see either movement, which is useful, but the other thing that you are inherently trading is the expansion in implied volatility, literally leading into the event in anticipation of the event. But nonetheless, right. anytime you buy a straddle, if it starts to move, it's good for you. Well, because uh, like even some of the ones where it looked like the IV was really skyrocketing, even the price hadn't moved from the entry point. And because of that, it was still steadily losing money. So I just thought that was interesting. It was actually kind of the opposite of what I was expecting. Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly right, though. You, you're you at least coming away with the correct takeaways, I think. Yeah, um, I think that's everything I had for my trades. Oh, the last thing was that SPY one. That was really just I wanted to see what IV did or what the price of that straddle did uh, in the lead up to FOMC. I think I wrote the wrong date on the, the date that was traded. That was actually picked up like Monday, I think. Okay. It was just I just wanted to see what the price did over the course of that time period. Did you hold it through FOMC or no? Uh, no, I sold it right before, or I wrote down, price I wrote down was right before 442, I think it was. 
Got it. Uh, four fifty six. Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote down the opening, the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and end of day for. Let's see. I think it would have been Monday, Tuesday, and then uh, today going into it. Got it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you as you build the data set, I would be curious to see what you find because I've actually studied that exact thing with the FOMC meetings. I started this last year because I'm mm -hmm. a giant fucking nerd. And I was just curious since it was like the talk of the town, how the markets moved around FOMC for like the past 40 years. So I created a, a pretty big data sample on that, but I'm curious what you find. And then I'll, right. I'll yeah, I'll share some of my notes, but I don't want to weigh your analysis at all it's going to take a lot more fomc meetings for me to get the all the data at this rate <laughs> yeah well big daddy j pal today made it pretty clear that my boy's not done so no he's not <laughs> he, he's ready he's ready to rock and roll all right what's next on our list today yeah so we already reviewed a bit of our goals and i want to immediately use that then to jump into um a couple things next so first Let's take a look at some options trading use cases. What are the primary reasons we may want to trade an option? We talked about this last time. Yeah, of course you're going to do that when I don't get the power of editing. Yep. <laughs> Speculation was one. Yep. I believe, did we say hedging? Was hedging one of them? Hedging one of them. Blaine, you nailed one of them last yeah, time. Yeah, it's not margin, but it is uh, being able to make a lot of money off a little bit of money, but I'm leverage, leverage, leverage. leverage. <laughs> There's one more and I don't remember what the last one was. Shit. Mm -hmm. Is it what I've been doing? No, it can't volatility. be. Volatility. Yeah. Is it volatile? Volatility. God damn it. Yeah. Yep. That Actually. should have been the one I got. <laughs> that should have been the one you got because it's the one that you're doing, but you know, he here we are. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Honestly, though, that, that's that's exactly right. The, mm -hmm. the reason why I think these are important is because every single time we trade an option, we should have that thesis in the back of our head. Why am I buying this option? If it's ever something that doesn't neatly align with at least one of those things, it tells us we're just defaulting to a product because we know this product. And that's a really bad reason to trade an option. It's like really bad because whenever we trade an option, there are things that can impact us, which leads us into B1B. Why shouldn't we trade an option? Because we feel like it. Great reason. That is a primary reason why we should not trade an option. I agree with you. So the thing here that I really want to call out is we shouldn't trade an option when there is a simpler alternative. That's when. Because oh. sometimes there is a simpler product we can trade a thesis in. For example, if I wanted to trade an option for leverage, okay, maybe I can still look at futures on the E-minis or the micros if your account size is smaller. If you just want directional leverage, that's a great way to go because you start to remove a lot of these other add-ons that we take on with options. So when we think about trading an option, the time we shouldn't trade it is if there's a simpler alternative available to us. The last one, why can options benefit us? We've already covered this, so I'm not gonna belabor the point. The main thing is that they are flexible. They allow us to express varying hypothesis, different risk reward profiles, and we've talked a little bit about that, even with the way that both of you trade, right? Completely different style of trading right out of the gate. And that's the cool part about options. So to help us kind of round this exercise out, 
I want to talk about some different strategies we can use in different market conditions. I have a video that I will share with you guys if you want to check it out that walks through kind of my primary strategies. The reason why I share that is because that's obviously my bias. I'm going to lean towards those strategies. So as I talk about options trading, I think it's also important for you guys to be aware of my bias, right? So the first thing I want to ask you guys is when we're bullish, what are some option structures we can use when we're bullish? You can just name one or two. I mean, you just go singles, just Single singles and what? directional, single contracts. But what what specific structure? Um, what what do you mean by structure then? What when so buying a call? I know that yeah, that's yeah, what you yeah. mean when you say singles. Yeah. Um, but so when we're long a call, that's an option structure. There's okay, okay. a semantics debate, especially if you go on Reddit, they're going to fucking have nothing else to do and hit you with semantics. So it's good to align on this quickly. Yep. Yep. I, technically, a strategy is kind of your application of a structure. So if you buy calls, that turns into your strategy because um, Blaine is looking at the 30 minute opening range breakout. That mm -hmm. is now a strategy, but sh the structure she's using there is long calls, long puts. Like, So yeah. when we're talking about structures, that's what that means. It's so pedantic. I hate it, but I also <laughs> love arguing, so I'm not innocent here either. I just want to make sure we're speaking <laughs> the same language. That's all. I usually default to long calls. Sometimes if I okay. want to reduce the price of the call options, I'll try to use a cal uh, 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 vertical spreads. Gross. Okay. I know you don't like those and you don't like the capped upside. And I actually don't like them anymore either because uh, they're a pain in the ass to sell out of. They can be, <laughs> unless you lay yeah. out of them, but that's a good yeah. point. So we have one from Kyle. Blaine, I kind of stole yours. So we'll see if you have another one here. Sure. I think I stole yours too. You can, <laughs> you can sell, can you sell puts if yes, you're you bullish? Yes, you sure can. Okay. Spot on. Okay. Spot on. So, so the quick breakdown of the difference between these two. If I want to buy a call, there are a lot of decisions that go into that. But the primary differentiator between buying a call and selling a put, first, upside potential. You mm -hmm. sell a put, you have capped upside potential. You buy a call, it is uncapped. This comes at an expense. If we buy a call, theta is working against us. If we sell a put, theta is working for us. Then we have gamma, which obviously applies the same for both, where gamma benefits the buyer, hurts the seller. So when I am bullish, there are there's really like one strategy I'm going to use, which is some sort of long call that is either part of a ratio diagonal or a leaps ratio diagonal. That's my go-to. And the reason for that is it allows me to benefit from a few different things simultaneously. Leverage I get, I get to minimize my theta payments and stuff like that. So you guys hit the ones right on the head. But the other thing to highlight here for the bullish variance between the two that you'll hear colloquially from most of the community is if IV is high, we're supposed to sell. And if IV is low, we're supposed to buy. There's some efficacy behind that but it gets more nuanced very quickly, which we'll get into in the future, but just to know that those exist. Mm -hmm. Any questions on the bullish structures? Does your video explain what a ratio diagonal is? Because I am of not course. familiar with how that works. Okay. Yeah. Good. So you'll hear me use the term ratio pretty frequently. It's 
not because I'm trying to be, you know, annoying with the terms, but it is an important differentiation for the structure, essentially, of the trade. So when I say a ratio diagonal, all I mean is I'm buying a call or a put. It can be a ratio call or put diagonal. It means I'm buying an option that's further out in time, typically at least 180 days, and then I'm selling short-term options against it that are the same type. So if I buy long-dated call, I'm selling short-dated calls against it. So okay, you'll also okay. hear to it referred as the poor man's covered call, which I fucking hate. So it's just another random thing. I just have a fucking ire towards. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But the, but the main difference between a poor man's covered call and what I'm doing in lies directly in the ratio. And it allows me to maintain uncapped upside potential. It's one of the biggest issues that option traders get into is they start to like a high probability of profit trade that doesn't pay them very well. And then they wonder why they walk out net negative after five years of doing this. Yeah, not capping profit potential is important, not to say that you can't find a balance, but I wouldn't look down on unlocked upside potential at the expense. You're going to have more losing trades. So talk to me about a couple strategies we can use when we are bearish. What do you guys think? I mean, it should be just the opposite, right? Selling yep. calls, buying puts. Bingo. And essentially the rationale between the two is exactly the inverse, right? Right. So. The one thing I will offer to people is, and again, this is where I'm just interjecting some of my personal experience. You should kind of test all of this stuff for yourself. But specifically, if you are wanting to get bearish via selling calls, that can be a nasty trade. A lot of people think this call is super far out of the money. I'm safe. They can grow teeth so fucking fast. Yeah. So I specifically highlight that to people because you are taking in a little amount of money and a lot of times taking in a lot of risk that you don't see because smaller accounts tend to trade smaller products that tend to be more volatile. Mm -hmm. This creates an ensemble that tends not to end well for people. So that's one thing I definitely would recommend for people to just keep in the back of their minds um, when you're deciding to, to structure these trades. For me, the go-to if I'm bearish is a ratio put diagonal or some sort of short options against it, but I'm either going to have really close profit and loss management tied to it, or I'm going to cap it. I'll buy a wing that's further out of the money so that I don't get ran over and it never comes back because that can happen to the call side. On the put side, as long as the product is relatively stable, they tend to come back up at some point. I'm not saying that you should hold for that whole period, but I find at least the severity to the downside might be steeper, but it's generally a little more temporary. Whereas things that I see take a big run up, sometimes they literally never come back. So it's something to keep in mind. Okay, last one. If we want to trade volatility, what are some strategies or structures we can use there? We can sell straddles and strangles. Bingo. That's exactly right. And the reason why I highlight this volatility component is I think as an options trader, it's something you should consider adding to your toolkit because it's one of the cool parts about trading options is that you can isolate volatility. There are very few other products that you can do that with. And you can essentially stop caring about direction and just trade volatility, which is kind of nice. 
that was the thing that most surprised me when I was digging in doing this exercise with the straddles was the price running away on like Microsoft, but seeing that the value of the whole thing had increased I'm like, wow, okay, this, this is, this is more powerful than I thought. There's definitely something to it. And the other thing that people I think sleep on a little bit too much is it offers your portfolio just another way to make money. So mm -hmm. if you have a bunch of, you know, directional options trades or directional trades, that's cool but sometimes the market's flat. And that's actually one of the things I found last year with a lot of traders that were trend traders that were equities traders. They were all bitching how difficult it was to find a bid. And for me on the other side, I, like I had a really good year last year and it's not because I'm a genius, it's literally because I can just go into my toolkit and grab something that fits that market. So volatility trading is actually a really useful thing to kind of integrate into that, I, I believe personally. Um, and so for trading volatility, more often than not, I'm going to use a short straddle. And the other variant to that, though, is sometimes um, like a, a short iron fly where I'll sell the straddle and then I'll buy the further out of the money wings. The issue with the fly, the iron fly technically, is there's drag on your returns. When you buy those wings, that is essentially the inverse to your hypothesis for selling the straddle, but you're using it to hedge risk. I think minimizing that is important to maximizing profitability obviously but sometimes it just makes sense like if i know i can't watch the markets i'm not going to just rest in order you know for three times credit received and then hope i don't get blown the fuck up if the market decides to have a big move right i don't accept that risk so i will just accept that i am giving up some of my theoretical edge by buying these wings but it allow me to stay in the trade for the for the whole duration which is super important to maximize the profitability there. Cool. So it also let you sleep at night too. I yeah, I think sizing is the big thing for that, but yeah. I agree with you. If if you need to and this goes back to kind of the individuality of traders. If you need to do some of these things at the expense of potential edge, but it still allows you to extract some edge, some edge is better than no edge. So it might not be optimal, but if it works it works. Cool. Mm -hmm. So I want to get to the homework quickly, and then that will wrap me up. On the left-hand side, you can see, I would love for you guys to take a look at each other's trading plans or logs, or if you wanna review any of the videos that I've done on it together, whatever works for you guys. The thing here that I just find useful, and this is something that I had a mentor that used to do with me, is he would just look at my shit and ask questions. That's mm -hmm. it. And that in and of itself, I typically found to be um, pretty useful. Then from there, I want us to look at those different market conditions that you see listed there and to come up with strategies for them. And this can be as simple as what we were just doing, talking about those different strategies for both, or if you wanna come up with some different ideas, that's fine too. But the main thing I'm talking about here is integrating this component of volatility because it should be part of your decision what do so, you mean by transitioning like it's going from low to high it's increasing bingo. or decreasing basically bingo does it matter exactly which right. it needs to be something you specify okay so the reason why i'm talking about the transitioning vol versus if iv is high or low is it's super common for retail traders to say iv is high i'm selling mm -hmm. unfortunately that doesn't mean that there's an edge. If IV is high, it literally just means that the market is expecting big moves. What we're actually trying to capture when we do these things is the difference between them. That is exactly what variance risk premiums are. So this weird looking chart, the yellow lines are implied volatility. 
the white and gray lines are realized. So when we're trading volatility, even if volatility is low, as long as it's trending above historic volatility, it still means our edge is there. So it's not necessarily a time to just throw away shorting strategies. This means you might make a little bit less money, but you're also going to experience less moves against you. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm specifically starting to highlight this part of transitioning volatility. So that's what I have for your homework. I am happy to take any final questions, comments, concerns, complaints. I don't want to hear any of those. Um, but yeah, what, what are you guys thinking? How do you feel? I feel fine. I am sort of stuck on the fact that you said you shouldn't um, trade options if there's an easier way. And I've mm. been, uh, I've heard ad nauseum from people I really trust that I should just uh, switch to futures because the way I trade is a way to trade futures, which I think is, I think that's interesting that you said that. It's my only I, comment. If you want to see what it looks like, I'd be happy to share my screen. <laughs> We want to see the chaos that's involved in that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think specifically for you, like trading futures, especially for like those really short intraday moves, I actually do agree. Like, I think those would make a lot of sense. My hope for you is to see if we can expose you. I'm particularly interested. I don't sense, I might be completely off, but I don't sense that the volatility trading is necessarily going to be your ish, and I don't blame you. May or may yeah. not be. Um, that's just my guess, but I do think things like the ratio diagonals could definitely be your ish. And I think it actually allows you to capitalize on two things. One, your proclivity for looking for trends and that's obviously a developed skill set. And then two, you don't have to sit in front of the fucking computer. You literally can do the homework for that trade at night, whenever you want, put on the trade, and then you could come back in 30 days when the short option expires and then put another one out. And then that's it. Just come back 30 days after that. Like literally that's it. So I think there might be a use case for that strategy for you, but I mean, obviously we'll see. Kyle, how about you? Um, how do you feel? I uh, just want to get started. I think on trying to build a new trading log. I've got a really solid one that I like for my futures trading. Uh, I'm just going to have to see if I can figure out a way to adapt that. Yeah. And that's cool because on the next one, it's an optional review. The first thing that we'll have is looking at trading plans or trading logs. So if you want us to take a look at it, we can. If not, what I'm going to do is look at the basic strategy that you guys outlay, and mm -hmm. then I'll give you some ideas on what I think would make sense. But okay. otherwise, ha happy to take a look at them. In the that sounds great. Um, does anybody else have anything then before we wrap this up? No. No, no sir. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you, everybody who stuck around to the end, especially thanks to Blaine for opening up and sharing with me, <laughs> making me feel uh, less of the spotlight in my face. <laughs> and thank you, Eric, for putting together a fantastic uh, lesson plan as usual. Uh, we're shooting for two-week release cycles, so keep on the lookout for the next one. And remember, folks, experience may be optional, but sharing this is not. Take care. <laughs>